afternoon to the fourth John Locke lecture on Platonism as a way of life. In, in all the ancient philosophers that we've discussed so far, and in all the others from the classical and Hellenistic periods, one common feature stands out that I've not yet mentioned. This is in sharp contrast to the philosophers um, to whom we now turn um, uh, in this last lecture, namely the Platonist philosophers of late antiquity. As we've seen, philosophy becomes a way of life in this whole tradition, the Platonists included, because of the relationships the Greek philosophers see between the highest human good, or eudaimonia, and philosophy. For them, philosophical thought and understanding, which bring to human life, as they think, a full grasp of the ultimate truth about human nature and the human good, is a necessary, and if brought to completion, a sufficient source of fulfillment and happiness for us. The key contrast that I just alluded to concerns the relationship that Platonists see between human nature and happiness on the one hand, and on the other, our life as human animals. A life we lead for a quite short period, growing to maturity within a family, and living out our lives within a social and political context of constant interaction with other people, and at the best, mutual cooperation with them, as we shape our lives right through until the moment of our deaths. All the Greek philosophers in both the classical and Hellenistic periods, um, including Plato himself, I would argue, though Plotinus and Platonists before and after him, would not agree with me. Even Plato himself conceived philosophy and its task in providing us with, the, with our highest good as addressing human beings and human life lived in full commitment to this world a world of personal, social, and political issues to be lived through on a philosophically informed and principled basis, leading to a this-worldly happiness. This is so even if, for Plato, in the myths he appended to some of his dialogues, such a happy life would be rewarded with an even happier afterlife as a spirit, no longer as such an embodied denizen of the physical world. And even though Aristotle, as well as Plato, recognize a human capacity for being in intellectual touch with a higher non-physical realm, and again, even though Aristotle, too, may accept that human beings can survive death in some etiolated way as pure intellects. The Stoics, Epicurus, and Peronian skeptics do not so much as envision any sort of other non-worldly life for a human being at all. For them, as well as Plato and Aristotle and Socrates too, philosophy is aimed at helping us live the lives we all know we've got in the here and now. And never mind, from the point of view of a happy human life, uh, any supposed afterlife lived under other than co the conditions of embodiment that we know all too well. Even for Plato, the reasons that he thinks philosophy provides as to why the life of virtue and philosophy is best for us concern our natures as embodied rational animals living embodied lives. The happy life of immortality for Plato is at best a distant hope, one that may vaguely inspire weaker minds which might need such reassurance in order to live a decent this-worldly life. For Plato, such a hope is not appealed to in any way by any proper philosopher, any actually happy person, in shaping and in pursuing their life. In turning to Plotinus and late Platonism, we step into a different philosophical world. The value and function of philosophy for these Platonists, not for Plato, is not to enrich and deepen our this-worldly life, but much more to disengage us and take us away from it, even while we are living it. In Plotinus's theories of human nature, the human essence, and as a result of that, of human happiness or the human good, as we will see, we, the human persons that we are, who live either well or badly as embodied living beings, are not in fact embodied things at all. Our life lies not at all in acts or experiences of the senses, or in the voluntary choices and actions that make up our daily lives in our families, with our friends, and in our societies. Our life, Plotinus thinks, lies in activities of pure intellectual thinking that we, all of us, according to him, engage in all the time, 
Most of us without even realizing it. Our task is to become as self-conscious as possible of that activity and to constantly focus our minds upon it, which is something we can in principle do, according to him, even while quay-embodied animal living an embodied life. If we do this, we lift ourselves ourselves altogether out of this this worldly world, the this worldly world, sorry, and up to a world of pure intellectual thinking in which our true life has all along been taking place. But now, if we reach the final goal of self-purification, our life consists in a full and active understanding of the intelligible objects of that thought, and we self-consciously and actively live that life. That, for Plotinus, is the human good and human happiness. Philosophy's task, one that only philosophy can perform, is to make us truly alive and to keep us alive in that self-consciously intellectual way. Now, before turning to discuss Plotinus' theories of the human person and human happiness, which I've just adumbrated in that quick summary, we need to take into account what I will present as three separate aspects of the intellectual context in and from which Plotinus did his philosophical work on first, the human person, second, the human good, and third, the character and role of the human virtues in enabling us to attain our natural good. Those are the three topics around which I'll be organizing my discussion today in the second half of the lecture, and they're on handout three. First, I need to say something about how Plotinus and his fellow Platonists conceived their relationship to Plato's own writing, writings. Second, and I'm afraid at very great length, I hope not too much for your stomachs, I need to place Plotinus' work on these topics in moral philosophy within the wider context of his Platonist metaphysics. That context provides the crucial and commanding perspective from which he considers all the questions of moral philosophy that we'll be investigating. Finally and briefly, I need to point out one pervasive feature of the spiritual context within which both the revived pagan Platonist philosophizing we'll be discussing and the development of Christian thought proceeded. This is what's been called a widespread spiritual crisis. Uh, I've just summarized the, or I've just mentioned the three issues which are summarized in handout number two. So, so what I'm going to be doing for the next 20 minutes or more um, is discussing these three introductory points in order. In fact, during these, these centuries, the ones I just referred to, pagan philosophy itself simply became a Platonist endeavor and way of life. Many philosophers of the first century BCE and the first century CE began to react very negatively to the materialist or corporealist philosophical perspectives of the major Hellenistic philosophies and philosophical ways of life, those of Stoicism and Epicureanism. The spiritual context I just mentioned has a lot to do with that dissatisfaction, and I'll say something about that shortly when I get to the third point that I just mentioned. Beginning already in the first century CE, philosophers were strongly attracted to ideas about the human soul, that is, about human nature, and about what they regarded as the true world itself, a true reality supposed to stand behind or above things as they appear, that made us and reality itself fundamentally spiritual entities, not bodily ones at all. For these philosophers, such spiritualist ideas found their most powerful and persuasive presentation in Plato's dialogues, hence the classification of their philosophical movement as Platonism. Both the so-called middle Platonists of the 1st and 2nd centuries CE and Plotinus and other late Platonists of the succeeding centuries actually claimed to trace these ideas back ultimately to Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans of southern Italy in the 6th century BCE. Indeed, further back, to a primordial, rather mystical wisdom supposedly available to to some most ancient thinkers long shrouded in the mists of prehistory. Because these thinkers... Because of these thinkers' nearness in those earliest days of the world to the gods, these Platonists thought 
The task of philosophy in later times ought properly to be one of recovering this ancient knowledge. Now, on that widely shared account, fanciful though it was, and based on little or no evidence at all, the primordial wisdom was handed down to, or rather recovered in historical times, by thinkers such as Pythagoras and Parmenides, and then, at last, dressed up in the proper philosophical format of argument and analysis through the philosophical genius of Plato. Late Platonists, therefore, thought of true philosophy as grounded in a primordial wisdom discovered by the most ancient Greeks and recovered for humankind in more recent times by Pythagoras, who, however, left no writings, and formulated by Plato in his dialogues, though incompletely and often in superficially misleading ways. Their own work consisted, as they themselves thought of it, in continuing this task of recovery by explaining, interpreting, and arguing for this alleged Greek wisdom while defending it from objections and updating it for their own times by drawing upon more recent philosophy where it seemed compatible and helpful. And in order to do that, they constantly took themselves to Plato's writings as the principal repository, if one that has to be interpreted in the right ways, of suggestions to follow up in their own work of independent theory construction. The crucial point of this wisdom was the recognition that all of what we ordinarily take for real, the physical world as a whole, all its contents, including our own bodies, are misleading derivations from a higher realm of true being. We ourselves, our souls, the seats of our consciousness, are immaterial spirits, allied in their nature to that immaterial true being, to the real reality. The study and knowledge of true being, including the knowledge of our own souls as spiritual allies of the true being, becomes the foundation of all proper philosophy. By the middle of the third century CE, when Plotinus wrote, and continuing thereafter until Greek philosophy's effective end by the seventh century, pagan philosophy, considered as an independent source of authoritative ideas about the world and about human life, just meant a commitment to this Platonist philosophy, in one form or another, with varying details, of course. It consisted in putting ourselves in touch intellectually with true being, and, as we will see, in living wholly for our own return to our origin as intellects and consciousnesses in that being upon death. The late Platonist version of the primordial wisdom starts from an appropriation of the fundamental distinction so sharply drawn in Plato's best-known works between forms and the physical world, the latter being derived from and through and through characterized by its relation of, quote, participation at different places within it and at different times in these platonic forms or ideas, as they're also called. The physical world and everything in it is perceptible, at least in principle. The forms constitute a realm that is not perceptible at all, but rather entirely, quote, intelligible, as they put it. Not our senses, but only our powers of intellect, bring, not bring us knowledge of the existence and of the individual natures or essences of these true realities, these forms. The philosophical principle, however, at the basis of Platonism, which leads to this distinction between forms and the sensible realm, as they call it, is the claim that the natures or essences of all natural physical objects and of all the natural properties, including mathematical ones, of any object are not located in the world of nature at all. Uh, that is, in the world that we humans and other animals have access to initially only through the use of our senses. There are, in the world, things and properties that have these natures, and we can examine and learn about them, about how they behave, how they may be connected and related to one another, by observation with our senses, and through study and experience, using our memories and making projections from the past to the future, and so on. But, Platonists claim, the natures themselves are not there, to be learned about by any use, however extensive and effective, of our senses and memories and powers of generalization and of effective projection to the future from data we might collect about things or properties having those natures. 
We can find out all kinds of things about dogs, individually or as a group, or about the color red in that sort of empirical way. But we cannot find out in such ways what it is to be a dog, what the dog's nature or essence is, or what the color red is in its nature and essence. Those natures are, as one may say, instantiated in the natural world, but they are not there in themselves. However, it's an undeniable fact that human beings, apparently alone among the animals, do possess the concept or idea of the nature of something. And so humans can become engaged in investigating the whole issue of the natures of things. For Platonists, the impulse that leads to and makes philosophy possible is precisely the impulse to wonder what the nature of something is, the nature of a dog, or indeed, in general, to wonder about what a nature could possibly be. For Platonists, following these late Platonists, following Plato's own usage, these natures are what we traditionally refer to as forms with a capital letter, Platonic forms. The crucial feature of a form is that in order to be the nature of something, say, the nature of humankind, that is, in order to be what it is to be human, it must itself be human in a complete and perfect way. The Platonists think that the essence of humanity can only, as it must, be the principle for organizing and otherwise disposing some physical materials into a physical human being and for sustaining them in that status if it really and fully is human itself. It's not another human being, maybe a super one, wonderfully powerful and so forth, but it has to and can only provide and sustain that organization for a human being by being what it is providing, namely human. That means that the form must itself be human in a special and perfect or complete way of being human, quite different from the way any physical human being is human. It is essentially, in its very nature, human, and being human is all that it is. Physical human beings are material objects, made of physical substances of various sorts, disposed and organized, held together, and made to function in certain ways by the presence to them of this form. Physical human beings are lots else besides human. They have many properties and characteristics, some related to their humanity, such as their shapes and sizes and their possession of certain organs and other physical parts, others not, or not so much so. For example, chemical and other physical properties belonging to the materials that make them up. Furthermore, the underlying materials that make up a human being are not essentially human. These materials are not, even taken together as a whole, and structured in such a way as to make up a human being, human in their natures. In their natures, they remain the particular specific materials or complex of materials that they are. And even such natures belong to them only contingently. Any physical thing is only contingently whatever it is. By contrast, the form is not a material being at all, and it has no other sort of substrate characterized by the term human. Each form is what it is, essentially, and is solely that one thing, human or red or tall or beautiful or ugly, etc., depending on the particular form that might be in question. No physical thing is anything, essentially. Each form is therefore a being in the strictest and strongest sense. It is in its nature and essentially something in particular. One form is human. Another is canine, another is beautiful, another is double, yet others are respectively tall or short, heavy or light, round or square, red or green or blue, and so on. No physical thing is anything at all in this strong, strict, and proper sense of being something. Each predicate we employ in speaking truly of any natural object is something that belongs to it, not by or in the nature of that object. Each term we predicate instead indicates some nature, some form, that the object only, as I said, instantiates. Collectively, then, we can say that the forms, in being the natures of the natural objects and of their natural properties, are also the only true, strict, and proper beings that exist. 
taken together, they constitute that which is. The physical world, by contrast, and everything in it, is no being at all. The physical world instantiates myriad beings, but to instantiate something is not at all to be that thing, as we've seen. Indeed, it precludes it. The physical world, without any doubt, exists, and by all means, it is not nothing. But it would be a mistake to consider it as a collection of beings, of things that fully are any of the things that we may correctly describe them as. What then are these physical things, if not beings? For the Platonists, they are metaphysical reflections, or shadows, cast on and in the matter from which the physical world is formed. I'll return to that idea of a metaphysical shadow in a few minutes. Now, two important points about these beings, these forms, must first be noted. First, we can see from their effects in the physical world that taken all together as a whole, the set of beings constitutes a well-integrated, intimately closely bound together, unified system of of entities. The physical world is a marvelously well-ordered thing, with all its parts and all their distinctive properties working together in such a way as to maintain and sustain a single ongoing and recurrent life over the days, years, and centuries of its essentially temporal existence. That's a remark I've just borrowed for the uh, Platonists because they borrow it um, from the Stoics. This makes it clear that the beings, too, on which this world depends through the process I've called Um, instantiation and participation are a unified, well-ordered, integrated set of entities. Each of the natures of the different forms, what the different ones of them are in their natures, is linked to each of the other natures in such a way as to constitute of them all a single system. One might perfectly reasonably think of the task of grasping the natures of things, say the nature of a dog, or the nature of, the red, of red color, as a one-by-one process. But ultimately, one will not succeed in fully grasping any single form, except by grasping closely related ones as well, the natures of other animals, the natures of other colors, in their relationship to it, and ultimately by grasping all the rest of the whole system as a unified whole system. One must see any given form in the context of the whole system of forms of which it is just one part in order finally and fully to understand any of them. The second point concerns what the Platonists call the exclusively intelligible character of forms. Physical objects and their properties as possessed by them can be seen or heard or otherwise taken note of and investigated through the use of the senses. But their natures, as I've explained, are not found in the physical world at all. These natures must be, must be grasped, investigated, and learned about solely through intellectual means, not at all by sensory ones. One must approach them through pure thought, starting from what we see or hear, but attempting to grasp essences and natures considered as principles of organization, that is, intellectual structures, for ordering each in specific ways, the sensible or perceptible materials that the world provides. Since these natures are essentially intelligible and in no way sensible, we can say that they exist in and for the understanding, that is, in and for being grasped intellectually. The forms retain their inherent connection to being understood, even if none of us has ever grasped or is currently grasping them in thought. As such, as intelligible, they must, in existing, also be understood. They are not really capable of being understood. Their essence is to be understood, to be grasped intellectually through, through pure thought. Hence, Platonists think, we must conceive this organized system of beings, the forms, as in their very nature, constant objects of thought. They are the contents of an intellect whose whole existence is, reciprocally, to be thinking them and understanding them in a full and total grasp of their individual and systematically connected natures. If there exist forms, then that is at the same thing as as, as for there to exist an intellect, a universal intellect, or intellect of and in the universe, which is and is nothing but the timeless act 
of thinking and fully understanding all the forms. We've now arrived at one of the three substances, or in technical Platonist terms, three hypostases that make up true reality. The reality lying behind and responsible for the physical world. This is in handout 2.2. The universal intellect, this entity whose whole nature it is to actively think the whole system of forms in its full and explicitly laid out orderly intellectual interconnection and multiplicity, is one of the three basic realities that make up Plotinus's and the other late Platonists' metaphysical system. What I've already said about forms leads us quickly and easily to a second of these substances, the first or highest or ultimate substance, or first God. For Platonists, all eternal things are gods. Intellect, too, is a god, but not the first one, since it metaphysically depends on the one. The one is the source of the reality of intellect, and so of the existence of the physical world itself, too, since that, in turn, derives wholly from intellect or forms. I've emphasized the essential unity of the set of beings or forms in that they constitute a single, fully interconnected system of separate things, each of them a distinct and different, single nature from the others. In fact, this set of things is what we could call a unity in plurality. That is, it's a unified set of many distinct things. These many are, however, a definite, fully determinate number of unitary entities. Thus, each of these units in the set is, in a different way, a unity on its own. Each nature is one unified thing. The canine nature, the nature of the color red, the nature of beauty, and so on, across the vast whole set of forms, are each a single coherent whole nature. Even if, when we humans grasp a nature, we grasp it in some articulated set of ideas, say, in tradi traditional terms, by thinking of the human as the featherless biped animal, this does not mean that human nature itself is divided into separate and assembled parts. Our thought just expresses the singleness and unity of human nature in an articulated way, and that helps us relate it to and distinguish it from other similar natures, seeing them all as distinct parts of the whole set of forms. In these two ways, then, unity is essential to being. Each being is, a strong, is in a strong way a unity. Each is a single nature, one unit, in the overall set of forms. And this whole set of beings is strongly a unity, a unity in plurality, in this case, too. In being units, and a unit, in these ways, the forms are exhibiting a feature of them that is essential to their status as beings. Beings just as such are unities, and just as such they are altogether a systematic unity in plurality. But Plotinus thinks that beings are of this character must depend on something beyond them, in fact on something whose very nature, if one could speak of it as having a nature, and the whole of whose nature is to be one, to be unitary, unified. Just as the physical dogs depend upon the canine nature, which, unlike them, is in its essence canine, so the forms depend for their unity on an entity that is one, in a complete and final way, and nothing but one. It is the paradigm of unity. It is what it is to be one. Being one and unified just is the whole of it. The being of the forms, therefore, implies the existence of a further substance, the one, as Plotinus sometimes calls it. But often, because of its ultimate character, he doesn't name it at all, but just points to it as the highest or the first. The one is the ultimate reality in the Platonist metaphysical system. It's responsible for the possibility of beings, since they are and have to be unified in the ways that I've indicated, and for the particular ways that these different beings differ from one another. Indeed, in some way that is beyond any kind of causation, the one brings intellect and forms into existence. As an absolute, self-contained, and totally independent eternal reality, something, so to speak, real to its very core, actively turning in to itself just on its own 
as the essential unity that it is, it is so overfull of reality, as Plotinus says, that it overflows and therein generates a bad term to use, being and beings. The one and intellect, then, are two of the three basic substances in Plotinus' metaphysical system. In intellect, forms are thought not only in a timeless way, but entirely in themselves, with no thought of their role as the natures of physical things. They are thought as a single unified set of ordered, mutually interrelated intellectual structures. However, of course, forms are ordered structures for something, for organizing matter. This is something, as we could loosely say, essential to them. What then explains this further step in the functioning of forms, that they are natures of things in the physical world? This function does not derive from intellect. It belongs, for Platonists, to soul. Soul is a third single united, sorry, single unified uh, eternal intelligible substance in addition to the one and intellect. It possesses a full understanding of the whole system of forms, as intellect does too, but we find in, in soul a fully articulated understanding of each and of all of them as the specific nature each one is within the overall system in their relationship to the physical world. Soul, no less than intellect, consists in an act of understanding, an act of thought. However, its way of thinking forms as a whole system is a way in which they are grasped specifically and precisely as principles for organizing the physical material world into a maximally well-ordered system of its own. Unlike intellect, soul thinks forms as instantiable and for instantiation, that is, for being participated in in the material physical world. Thus, whereas intellect thinks forms in a way that sees them as mathematical structures, making up a mathematically unified system, soul thinks them concretely, as red or dog, for example. That is, in terms of a linguistically elaborated definition of what it is to be a red or a dog. Moreover, in doing that, and because it does that, soul moves to create the physical world and to shape, organize, and direct everything in it. It does this by casting those metaphysical shadows or reflections of relevant forms that, that I mentioned onto and into the cosmic matter and by overseeing the coming and going of these reflections. The coming and going that constitutes all the physically existent things and all the events making up the history of the physical world. For Platonists, it belongs to the very nature of soul as such to move itself toward creation. This is what it is to be soul, or part of what it is to be soul. Here, finally, we reach the essential point of connection from this vast metaphysical background to our ethical concerns. The single substance soul functions at two principal levels in performing its tasks of creation and management of the physical world. Altogether, in fact, it functions at five levels. I'll come back to that. First, as world soul, soul takes over all the functions that we saw in the last lecture Zeus performs for the Stoics, creating with their individual natures and managing everything belonging to the world of nature insofar as it does so belong. Natural stuffs, natural objects, including plants and animals. Secondly, however, just as with individual human minds for the Stoics, again, individual Platonist human souls make decisions, form practical attitudes, engage in acts of evaluation and decision. Individual human souls are the ultimate sources of all the voluntary acts of each one of us. It is soul in us, in each of us then, not world soul, that functions in this second way. In short, while the world soul takes care of the needs of the rest of the natural world, the individual soul of each of us takes care, well or badly, of our own individual needs as naturally embodied rational animals. And, of course, since the essential activity of all soul is the intellectual grasp of forms, our human souls also give us the higher capacity to think intellectually about forms. 
Before turning to details of Plotinus' theory of the human person and human happiness, I need to take up briefly the question I mentioned at the outset concerning the spiritual context in which both pagan Platonist philosophizing and Christian thought came into existence as Christianity transformed itself from a local religious movement among some uneducated Hebrews into a movement offering personal salvation for educated people across the Roman Empire. Pierre Adot describes this period well as one beset by what he calls a psychological phenomenon, widespread among intellectuals of all stripes, characterized by what he calls a spiritual tension and anxiety, even a nervous depression. At its root was a deep unease over our place as human consciousnesses within the physical world, a fearful sense of not really belonging, of living somehow in an alien place where we don't belong and where we suffer simply by being there. In philosophical terms, one can say that what lay behind this was a very momentous shift in people's conception of their own selves. And this new conception is still with many of us today. People began to think, to feel or think that what they, what they most fundamentally and intimately are is not even, as for example it was for the Stoics, a mind, which can of course be comfortably conceived as part of nature. That is how the Stoics conceived it. No, these people began to think of themselves as pure consciousnesses, each one an eye of pure self-awareness, floating above physical reality, no part of the physical world at all. Understandably, then, they could feel the deepest anxiety over what our inevitable involvement in physical reality and subjection somehow to physical events in our conscious states can mean not only about our identities, but our very lives, and especially about our deaths. This result, the result was an intense search for relief from these anxieties, these self-caused anxieties by thinking of yourself that way. One way was the way of pagan rational Platonist philosophy. St. Augustine, around the turn of the 5th century CE, notoriously tried that. But he, and increasingly many others, felt that they needed a more personal savior than the Platonist one, to be the ground of all being, with a nature cognate to one's own, in which one could engulf oneself and find salvation by withdrawing from the alien physical world. This new conception of human identity underlies and deeply affects one of Plotinus' philosophically most brilliant innovations, his conception of what a human person actually is, namely, as we will see, a pure intellect. Let us then now, at last, turn to some details of that theory. Plotinus faces severe difficulties in adapting his account of soul, an eternal substance whose only activity is pure intellectual thought, with eternal forms for its content or objects in such a way that it can accommodate the various phenomena universally recognized in the philosophical tradition of, of individual human consciousness. Like other living things, including all types of plants and all non-rational animals, world soul makes both the material stuffs our bodies are made of in their various combinations, mixtures, and distributions in constituting a human, a human body. Uh, I'm now referring to handout number four. It is also responsible, the world soul is, for the shaping of all our bodily organs and their distribution across our bodies, and also for the occurrence over time, through the activities of some of those organs, of such automatic life functions as nutrition, breathing, heartbeat, heat maintenance, growth, and the maintenance of the equilibriums of physical health. World soul does all these things through thoughts that it thinks eternally in relation to all the places over time where human beings are located. In doing so, it applies a vast array of forms at those places and times as the natures of all the relevant types of material entity required. Human beings, however, have what we can conveniently speak of as individual souls of their own in which their individual consciousnesses reside. Soul itself, the eternal single substance, operates in our bodies, besides the ways already mentioned that world soul operates, in this additional way, in giving additional sorts of direction and management to things of our nature require. This individual um, consciousness is itself quite complex, 
operating at three levels on the handout. At the first level, we have perceptions, non-rational desires and emotions. At the second, we have the power of reasoned thought and decision-making about events in the physical world and about their significance for our physical life. At the third, we have the power to think about forms and grasp their natures and relationships in constituting the whole system of forms. The substance soul provides us with these powers in constituting us as the particular sort of animal that we are. Problems immediately arise at the first of these three additional levels, but they extend equally through the second. The human soul, like all soul, is a purely intellectual entity. How can a purely intellectual thing possess and function with perceptions and non-rational desires and with elaborated trains of thought that seek and give reasons for a particular person's doing or not doing something specific in some specific observed circumstance? The nub of the problem is that all the functions of perception and desire, which are shared with animals, as well as those special ones to do with human, as one could say, empirical reasoning, are in a certain essential way shared with the body. When we perceive, we use our bodily organs. When we are hungry our foot, or, or our foot gets stepped on, we experience something, in experiencing which some corresponding bodily affection, at least normally, is required. Indeed, in some crucial sense, the bodily affection is part of the overall conscious state or act of perception or feeling. When we are angry, to draw on a famous analysis of Aristotle in his De Anima, there is blood boiling around the area of the heart, and in no merely coincidental way either. When we remember something, there are traces in our minds from previous bodily experiences. When we think out concrete plans for action, we have in some way to visualize or otherwise represent in our minds what we are to do. In all these cases, the conscious experience is linked with bodily states and events in such a way that, following Aristotle, on whom Plotinus bases this part of his theory, we need to think of these activities of consciousness as ones that in some way are common to body and soul. They are not wholly soul phenomena at all. But how can a purely intellectual thing, something essentially self-contained and occupied in its thoughts wholly with non-bodily entities, forms, share its operations with anything bodily? It's one thing to suppose that the substance soul can creatively cause physical objects, sustain them in existence, and cause their varied movements. But the states and activities here concerned are ones where consciousness is itself mutually affected through its interactions with the body as it causes our movements uh, of perception, feeling, and acting, and action. When we feel a pain in our foot, some state of the body is what we are feeling. And indeed, that state of the body is what gives us this feeling. Correspondingly for the other cases, how then can we make sense of the human soul as being so linked to the human body that some of its own operations are ones that have a physical bodily side to them? Plotinus's ingenious solution is to suppose that in animating human beings, as well as other animals, Soul provides a special sort of what he calls an illumination in their bodies. This is handout number five. Um, soul casts a certain image of itself, another metaphor, into the bodies of these living things. It is this image or illumination in the body which, taken together with the body, constitutes it as a living being. In Greek, a zoon. This image is animal consciousness including perceptual and desiring and emotional consciousness. The living being itself, constituted by this consciousness in that body, possesses the powers of sensation, physical desire, and emotional reaction, all of which have both bodily and conscious components. And it does so because of the soul image that animates and illuminates it, and so makes it conscious. The point we need to notice is that Plotinus, by attributing the powers of sense perception and sensory memory, bodily desire, and emotion to this soul image, by doing that, he can avoid having to think of soul itself as directly providing or grounding these activities. 
ones that are so evidently alien and contrary to its own nature. Soul itself, and therefore all particular souls, being purely spiritual, thinking, intelligible entities, could not possibly be affected by anything bodily, as this soul image is when it activates all these powers. However, it's not difficult to conceive of an image of soul just because it is an image, just because as an image it is darker and more obscure and somewhat deformed as something mingled in precisely such ways with the body that it animates. We can suppose, even if we don't fully understand it, that this image can make us conscious with these sorts of bodily, of bodily consciousness. It's the basis for our human beings engaging in these particular forms of conscious experience. The substance soul, or equivalently our soul, creates this image of itself when it comes down, another metaphor, into a human body in order to animate it, according to Plotinus. We, like other animals, need to have powers of individual consciousness in order to observe our particular surroundings and obtain food, avoid danger and harm, and interact in the social ways with members of the same species or other species that are natural to the animal kind to which we belong. This has to include desires for certain sorts of food and other nourishment, and emotional responses to perceived dangers or prospects of them, as well as emotions and, and desires to give us interests in and to motivate us to engage in our various natural activities of social life. Each animal has to have its own complete system of such forms of consciousness, and soul provides us with an appropriate human soul image, which gives us the forms of consciousness we need in order to grow up properly, reproduce and thrive and flourish according to our own physical nature as the kind of animal that we are. Each animal has charge of very significant parts of its own life through its use of its powers of embodied consciousness, which therefore must be a fully integrated, developing and sustained system for its whole lifespan. Thus, we can say generally that the forms of consciousness belonging to the soul image of any given animal are provided to it for the sake of its taking care of itself and adequately providing for its physical life and for seeing to it that, so far as outer circumstances make possible, it thrives, reproduces, raises offspring so that they too will be able to thrive and so that it lives a naturally effective whole physical life. The soul image focuses exclusively then on the single individual animal in which it is lodged enabling and directing that animal to be concerned for itself and its physical life. Now, this soul image simply is, in non-rational animals, their soul, their whole consciousness. In human beings, this animal consciousness is certainly part of a human soul. But because we are rational animals, in receiving our soul image, we must also acquire the further powers of empirical inference and ordinary reasoning about what to do and why in particular empirical circumstances. We have to notice things, draw inferences, think about what is good for us or bad, and plan out courses of action. Thus, we have powers of rational thought too. We conceptualize, seek and give reasons through which to understand what we are affected by perceptually, and through which to shape and control our feelings and desires. Plotinus seems not entirely clear, or perhaps even quite consistent, about these powers and their operation. Since they clearly do depend upon our being conscious of, and making reference in our thoughts to physical entities as such, they must be somehow aspects of the soul image, given by soul to human beings as part of their nature. They involve embodied jointly conscious and bodily events. On the other hand, Plotinus seems to say that even reasonings about particular matters of fact are in some way or aspect activities of what he calls the higher soul. That is, the third level of human consciousness that I distinguished a few minutes ago. That's precisely because, according to Plotinus, even such reasonings come from the forms, or rather, from our implicit awareness of them. An awareness that in itself is totally a matter of abstract, purely intellectual thinking. We have to be thinking implicitly of forms in order to classify the physical things being thought about under their natural kinds, and so, in fact, to think about them at all, even in a merely empirical way. 
So, for Plotinus, what I've been calling empirical thinking, whether practical or more or less theoretical, and other discursive thought, derives from a power of consciousness that is a hybrid, involving both the soul image and the higher soul or pure intellect. So, given these complexities of the human soul, what should we say the human person, ourselves, as Plotinus puts it, actually is? Where are we, the consciousness that we are, the I, in all this complexity? As I've already said, for Plotinus, the living being that, in some sense or way, I am, consists in a certain soul image embedded in a certain human body. I cannot be that. This, what Plotinus calls my lower soul, cannot be me. I cannot be an image of my soul brought into being by my soul when it came into my body. I must be my soul. The image of my soul, the the seat of my bodily feelings and my body-related non-rational desires, as well as of perceptions and merely empirical reasonings, is something I have, something attached to me, as Plotinus says once. But it's not me. In my self-consciousness, my consciousness of my consciousness, when I'm conscious of objects of embodied experience, as well as objects of pure thought, I am aware of myself, of my soul, as something higher. Indeed, since as a Platonist I know that souls are spiritual eternal beings, as something purely intellectual and eternal. I am exclusively my higher soul, as Plotinus often refers to it. I am my intellect. That, Plotinus insists, is what I am conscious of in my self-consciousness. The question we face, then, is what this recognition should mean for us in thinking of our lives and of how to lead them. It follows from Plotinus' analysis that, strictly speaking, our life can only, be, can only be the life, the activity, of the highest aspect of our minds. That is, our life, to the extent that we really do live, to the extent that we are alive, must consist in activities of abstract theoretical thinking about forms. However, we do have an embodied life under our care, too, as I said, a life that we may also in some way live, that we we do also in some way live. In our soul image, sorry, it is our soul image that taken with the human body that it animates constitutes the living being that in some sense or way each of us is as well. So, we need to consider how to go about relating ourselves to that life. We are always, while awake and even to some extent while asleep, active with our senses and with their effects in memory. Those activities and experiences plainly do belong to the same consciousness that we are. We are also filled with feelings of pleasure and pain, and depending on the particular character of our soul images, all kinds of emotional reaction and response to what we perceive and desire. Those states of consciousness plainly do belong to our single uh, consciousness. For Plotinus, the crucial point in working out correct ideas about how to live our embodied life is that it's up to us, at least to a significant extent, what to give our attention to, or else to ignore and consciously look away from. In giving itself to us, soul makes us, that is our intellects, in charge of our lives. We exercise this leadership through the capacity, essential to an individual human intellect lodged in a certain body at a certain place, to direct our intellectual attention, our consciousness, explicitly and self-consciously, as Plotinus picturesquely puts it, upward toward forms and or downward toward the life of the soul image and the body. To turn upward is to attend to and exercise our powers as pure intellects with concentration and without attending to anything involving or having to do essentially with bodies, with our own or one surrounding us, even if and while one may still be aware of them. To turn downward is to attend to and focus upon the life of daily activities and concerns, the life we possess insofar as we are embodied things. This orientation of our attention, of the focus of our consciousness, is something for us, our individual intellects, to decide. It's the power of focus, it's that power of focus that our essential freedom as agents consists in on Plotinus's view. It's the fact that 
we can focus our attention either upward or downward or both at the same time. And the way in which we do it uh, is what determines, uh, 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 is the effect of the, of the essential freedom we have. We have the freedom to do that. And the way in which we do it is what determines the character of our lives. And I'll say more about that as I go on. Now, in fact, as long as we are alive, we cannot fail to be conscious of what is below. And it would be quite unreasonable, if not, in fact, entirely impossible, to attempt either to be actually unaware of what goes on down there, or, as a general policy, just to distract and hold one's attention away from it, in favor of looking exclusively upward towards forms. The two alternatives, keeping our attention directed upward and directing it downward, cannot be treated as mutually exclusive. Even if we follow Plotinus and accept that our true selves are our intellects, we must somehow combine an interest in what is above with some interest in what is below in our lives. No doubt, one can on some occasions and for some periods of time distract oneself and train oneself so that for those times one hardly even notices what is below as one concentrates one's attention upward. Plotinus definitely does recommend doing that on occasions since it is exclusively in those activities of explicit and devoted abstract thinking that our true good lies, on his view. I'll come back to that in a minute. But in our lives as a whole, we must divide our attention, whether at different times or even simultaneously. We must be attentive to and concerned for what is below and not just be conscious of it, as well as for the above. The principal question of ethics for Plotinus concerns the principles on which and the spirit in which one ought to effect this division. What reasons are there lying in one's own nature and in the nature of reality that could determine how one should combine holding one's attention as a regular practice below with also as a regular practice uh, turning it and holding it above? This question concerns one's basic, constantly maintained practical assumptions, one's worked out thoughts, convictions, and attitudes about the values for oneself namely for an individual intellect, in such concerns. What basic outlook ought one to adopt in governing one's use of one's natural power to focus and pay attention either upward or downward or both in the course of one's life? What should one care about in the exercise of one's lower powers of consciousness? How should one relate those cares to the consummate and final value that one places in the exercise of one's higher power when it is being exercised to perfection. In asking these questions, we are asking about the Platinian and Platonist conception of the human virtues. Since in the whole of ancient philosophy, it's by possessing and exercising the human virtues in one's life that one lives well, and therefore happily. Since Plotinus holds that what we are is only one of our soul capacities, our intellects, for him, whatever conditions of our souls count as virtues, and so as enablers of happiness, must stem from a firm and fundamental awareness of ourselves as our intellects exclusively. We are no other element in our consciousness. The rest of our consciousness belongs to us, and in that sense is ours, but it is not us. Hence, for Plotinus, human virtue overall must be a complex thing, including both specific conditions that structure the direct uses of our intellects in addressing its specific task of knowing forms and ones belonging to the lower consciousness governing its relations to the physical world and to our physical lives. Uh, this is on handout six. The first are virtues that concern our activities above as we actively exercise our higher, our higher capacities once we have turned our concentrated attention upward and have begun to recover or make self-conscious to ourselves the full natures of the different forms, what it is to be a human being, what it is something to be read, what equality and difference in their essential natures are. The second set of virtues, number three on my handout, concern our activities as we look down into the physical world and relate to our life and they relate to our life below. So Plotinus works out a theory of the human virtues that includes both an account of the virtues our intellects need in order to, perform, to perfect our intellectual lives. He describes those as intellectual virtues and an account of the virtues of our lower consciousness as we experience, react to, and make our choices concerning our physical and social environments. Those virtues are needed for us to make that life too as good a life as possible. 
Plotinus calls these the political or civic virtues. But he thinks we must recognize a third level of virtues as well, ones that belong to the intellect but concern the conditions in it that are needed to enable us to draw ourselves away from active involvement in and zestful concern for the life below. That, with that concern, uh, with that involvement and zestful concern, is how we all begin life. And it's extremely hard for any human being not to make that zestful concern central to their life. We need special virtues enabling us to keep and to focus our attention with increasing strength and effectiveness upon what is above. These, Plotinus calls, the, pur the purifying virtues. The key point in the theory of virtue at all three levels for Plotinus is that because of what we are, our calling is to a life above. The essential and sole activity of the virtue of the human person as such is this actively cont contemplative full grasp and understanding of intelligible reality. A Platonist real and sole interest, therefore, the sole source of satisfaction and fulfillment in life is in looking away from and infinitely far above the physical life below. It lies in a deeply enthralled love of theoretical thinking and equivalently, as we have seen, a love of the true reality of forms that that thinking brings us fully into touch with. So far as the life below goes, the correct attitude is to regard oneself as a caretaker appointed to oversee the life of the individual rational animal that one is, in doing one's own part alongside the world soul in creating and sustaining the life of the physical world. If one lives correctly, one sees that one's living being gets the foods and other physical care it needs. One sees that it relates to other human animals in morally and socially proper ways. But one does these things always from the emotional distance required for Plotinus by one's true identity as an intellect. To identify oneself in any way or degree with the lower consciousness and take a direct and zestful interest in its states or in objects of pursuit for physical and social life, so far from showing a virtuous disposition of mind, as Aristotle thought, is incompatible with it. If, whether by our action or not, our physical and social life flourishes, the goods of our bodies and of our soul image so attained are not, and must not be regarded as, bringing us any intrinsic satisfaction whatsoever. The lower consciousness and what it undergoes or accomplishes do matter to us insofar as they are ours, though that part of, uh, of our consciousness is not us. But they are imposed on or joined to us, and in that way they are given to us solely to take care of, to offer our leadership over, so long as we are alive, and that too is imposed on us. True virtue involves accepting and understanding this relationship between ourselves and everything else, bodily and spiritual, that is, any, that is in, in this way external, to, uh, external is, is, is in this external way, in any, in any way ours. Sorry. I'm, I'm almost finished. You'll be glad to know. <laughs> Accordingly, human happiness or eudaimonia uh, simply and solely is this activity of perfected, active contemplation and grasp of the forms. Or equivalently, it is a fully achieved condition of self-willed, self-accomplished, actual identification with universal intellect, the substance from which one's, as it were, individual soul ontologically proceeded. The happiness in the happy human life, as Plotinus describes it at length in his treatise on happiness, treatise 1.4, is that activity of contemplation carried out without cease, even while asleep, once you have acquired the ready ability to engage in that activity at all. You acquire that ability through the force of your mind's focus and concentration over many years of efforts upon your higher soul and its activities of intellectual thinking, and with the help of your purifying virtues in detaching yourself fully and permanently from any residual tendency to think or feel any personal interest in your body or in its life of feeling, emotion, and desire. Your happy life itself, of course, 
your happy life itself, of course, at the same time that you are always contemplating and are constantly returned to the intellect from which you, de you derive, does contain other activities of a virtuous sort, both in the constant exercise of the purifying virtues, in keeping your mind strong and able to focus, and also in your ongoing life of practical activities, as you see to your duties with respect to your bodily and social life. I have no time to say more about these three sets of virtues or their activities or to go into the further details about the happy person's way of life with which the treatise on happiness is replete. The crucial point to note is that the happiness of the happy life for Plotinus consists solely in the intellectual activity I've described through its being present in it. The practical life of daily and social engagement with the physical and human world with which the happy person will be surrounded until he or she dies and returns permanently to be united to the universal intellect is the expression only of secondary virtues that enable one to engage in that top activity. Happiness thus simply is, for Plotinus, philosophical thinking about forms at its highest level. For a human being, philosophy itself, as a search for wisdom, is the only way up to reality and thereby the only way up to true life itself. Thank you.